Welcome back, Health Bite family, and welcome to my podcast, Health Bite, where I offer you small, actionable bites towards greater mental, emotional, and physical well being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Yadim, and I hear your frustration. As a physician specializing in weight loss and nutrition, I'm also frustrated. The weight loss world is filled with noise and nonsense, and I created this podcast as an alternative to the noise to offer you knowledge-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use in my medical practice every single day. Today, I have a special treat for you. I am interviewing Dr. Julie Barba. She is a wife, mother of four, physician, and member of a large food-loving Italian family. Her professional life is varied and includes work as a pediatric obesity specialist, the founding medical director of CHEF, Culinary Health Education for Families, through which she has empowered families to make delicious, satisfying meals with affordable ingredients that won't break the bank or require gourmet cooking skills. And now she coaches women on how to heal burnout. Our delicious conversation includes how she reconciled big Italian dinners and healthy eating, tips on how to bring healthy and affordable cooking into your home, and how we can use food for self-efficacy, as well as tips to start living in alignment with our true values. Listen in to our wholesome conversation now. Welcome, Julie, to Health Bite. I'm so, so excited to have you with me today. Adrian, thank you so much. It's such a treat. And I, I can't wait to, to get into it. Yeah, this is going to be a wonderful conversation because you have such a wonderful background professionally and also personally. I, I admire your motherhood of four. We were just discussing before we started recording. So tell us a little bit about yourself and then specifically how you got into the realm of food, nutrition, and health. Sure. Well, thank you so much. You know, I am so blessed to have four kids. That has been not a spectator sport. It's definitely a team sport. And I'm lucky to have a really helpful husband who we've done it together and been a lot of fun. I am from a big family. I'm from a Sicilian produce family. And that kind of is part of the breadcrumbs leading to my culinary medicine pursuit. But uh, I've always loved kids and appreciated the fact that, you know, their medical issues are rarely not a lot of elective health issues. So I think that's what drew me into pediatrics. And then my background coming from a produce family and always loving food and always uh, family meals were a really big part of um, my life, my grandmother, Zula Canelio LaBarba, if that's Italian enough for you, used to have oh, us yeah. over with all the cousins over at like every Sunday night to have a meal and to break bread. And only now as a mother of four running a house, do I realize what a labor of love that was, but that was kind of ingrained in me. We always ate fresh food and, you know, whole milk and butter. And we never really, I've never heard my mom talk about dieting, I never heard my grandmother talk about dieting. You know, we always just ate and ate at mealtimes. And of course there were snacks and stuff, but usually a lot of really fortunate to have a lot of fresh, healthy food around. So, so that's kind of how, you know, I grew up and then I actually went to college and majored in uh, French and human development. And I lived in Europe and taught school and did some other things. And then just always had this burning desire to go to med school. I had signed up for chemistry at Vanderbilt and my stomach hurt so badly in my freshman class that I just, I think I have in a journal somewhere. It says, well, this medicine thing is not going to work out sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I so hate I, general chemistry, by the way, that, that yeah, it just, it blew my mind. I just was like, I was nauseous in there. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can hack this. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So I came back from Europe and I told my mom and dad, you know, is there any way I can move back in and start over? And they were so gracious to allow me to do that. So then I, I call it divine intervention because somehow I only had to take the MCAT once and I studied for two years straight and got right in. So that was very, very lucky. And then, yeah, I kind of always knew I wanted to do pediatrics just because I've always, you know, I had taught elementary school and I always loved kids and I really went to med school to be a pediatrician. Like I never really had any other thoughts of what I wanted to do, maybe besides psychiatry. Yeah. So, so just that's kind of like where, kind of where my path led was to med school. And then I did practice general pediatrics. And then I practiced in the GI department working with overweight children and constipated kids. I, I basically did a lot of the counseling that maybe 
some of the GI docs that did more intervention weren't really as interested in doing. And I, you know, I, I did things like I had a little metal shopping cart from uh, Pottery Barn Kids, you know, that was my kids and I would stick fi- high fiber groceries and I would go to the store and buy the actual boxes and the bread and the, the different things. So families could see like the families I worked with were all underserved. And so when you just say, hey, add fiber to your diet, that really didn't mean anything to them. So I went and bought the tortillas that they would buy or the the bread that some families would buy and kind of swaps for what they would buy and what they needed to buy in terms of their their child's condition. And so, yeah, just kind of got really hands-on with people and really enjoyed that. And then ended up working with a science museum called the Woody Museum of Science with our grocery store chain, HEB, one of our, our uh, big grocers here. And we did a, a health science exhibit called the HEB Body Adventure. And so weirdly, now that I'm, I, I actually had a radio show in college and then I did the voiceover for that exhibit here in San Antonio, just because they 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 actually were, were on a pretty tight budget. And I said, well, if you want, I, I used to have a radio show. If you want, I, I'm happy to do the English voiceovers. I speak Spanish, but not well enough to do the voiceovers for an exhibit. And then here I am podcasting. So I guess you know, life does leave you little breadcrumbs with hints about what's to come. So anyway, I love, that. I love the breadcrumbs <laughs> analogy. It's, it warms my heart as does your background. And I really want to dig into that because a lot of times the conversations I have with my patients are around family traditions and family traditions that surround food. And I talk about this with my patients. I talk about it in my book, Jewish Persian background. It's girl, it's all about food, right? A hundred percent. And and yet, and yet, like all relationships in life, uh, we need boundaries around that. And so what I'd love for you to, to talk about that a little bit because when I think big Italian family, I am thinking I can envision that big bowl of spaghetti with the you know, huge meatballs. And and of course it's delicious. And, and when something is yummy, we want more and more and more. So talk to me a little bit about how that informed your, your decision-making and, and your own practice with food and how, if you consider it in terms of boundaries or, or how you perceive of that, like how do we create space for the tradition and yet for what's right for our bodies. Well, ironically, I have just returned from Italy like two weeks ago. And it's so funny how differently my family ate compared to how they do eat in Italy. Like, you know, the pasta is al dente, first of all, in Italy, which of course, most people probably know this, but just it's, it's a little bit undercooked from what we would, we would say, they call it ben cotto. It's like, well done if you eat it like we normally eat it. Mm-hmm. And so my family had always had their pasta ben cotto. It was never al dente. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is different. And then also, of course, in the Italian culture, you have like a primi secundi, you know, so the primi yeah. is like a little bitty, little bitty tiny nest of pasta. You don't eat that huge bowl of pasta. And then you have like a meat or a fish with some vegetables and a salad and maybe like a little dessert and espresso or something. So that's the typical way to do it. But in my family, you know, like spaghetti and those great meatballs, which they were amazing. That would have maybe probably been the main course. Um, I know my grandmother that I mentioned earlier, Zula, she started cooking dinner at breakfast time and just the whole home economics of that sort of being on a budget. She had six children. She's kind of my muse for kind of what I want to be like really in life and starting shopping for the week. And then of course she had a produce at her disposal. So so my grandfather brought a lot of stuff home, but just kind of like economizing and planning, you know, for six kids. Okay. When are we going to have the steak? When are we going to have, you know, she would put huge potatoes in the stew just to make it go a little further, but she would start cooking that meal at right when breakfast was over, she started cooking dinner. And I think that really speaks to kind of the how automated our food has become. It's sort of like we've outsourced one of the most important things in our lives is the convenience of food. You know, what my grandmother did wasn't very convenient. She spent her whole day on that. But today I think we're always looking for a shortcut. We're always looking for convenience. And it's because we're sitting at our desk all day. I mean, this is maybe different because of COVID now people working from home, but I've really started to think about when I was working really long hours at the hospital at a culinary medicine program, I would come home and not really have much time to cook dinner for my family. I mean, I have a a slow cooker and, and I also have a helper that we could 
plan stuff together and she would get it ready. And then we'd cook when I got home, but you know, just that automating of our food and that outsourcing of, of our food and making it more convenient and the market for that has really made what we do as obesity specialists more difficult because people aren't really used to going to the market and starting their meal in the morning and planning and organizing in that way. At least most people, I think, just haven't maybe even had that in their family. You know, a lot of young people haven't seen their moms do that or maybe even their grandmothers. So I think there's sort of this lost art when I talk about, you know, the way that my grandmother cooked to now. Um, And there's a certain like grief in that. There's a certain sadness of losing that. I think that meals don't have to be elaborate and expensive to be delicious. And I think that's what's so great about Mediterranean cuisine and Persian cuisine. So, I mean, I love Middle Eastern cuisine. It's my favorite, actually. (laughs) You know, so many of those the the grains and the beans and the the spices are really what make those meals what they are. I have a, actually there's a company that I use. Uh, it's called Sugar Roti, and uh, I have no skin in the game, but I would, I just cooked it last night for my husband. It was a curry, and they have these spices pre prepared in these packages that they're Indian spices, and so there's not they're not something that I really stock in my kitchen, and I don't need a whole bunch of them because I don't cook that way all the time. But literally, if you have like some chicken, put some potatoes and an onion and you add this packet, they're all like, they're they're not processed in any way. They're just packaged and pre-measured. Sugar roti uh, is the name. And I'm not trying to advertise that you can even cut that out. But it's it's a- It's nice to know. Yeah, no, it was delicious. And they have a kachari with the rice and the lentils. And my husband was like, oh my gosh, I want you to make this every week. So I think what I'm saying is that there are shortcuts because of technology. We do have some shortcuts that can make home cooking convenient and simple and easy. And that was the, that was the purpose of this woman's business was I realized she, she was Indian and she grew up having her grandmother and her mother cook for her. She started to have some health problems and she realizes, she said, the only spices I was using were salt and pepper. You know, she was like a a big time executive in think New York and uh, kind of in the food and and hospitality industry. And it was just funny because she really went away from her basic, you know, traditions of her family. And she went back to that and she was just the, the quandary she was in was how am I ever going to get professional women to cook like this when it's so complicated to get all these spices together and measure them out. And it's not something they stock in their pantry. So she decided, well, maybe I'll just make these little kits that women can use if they just have a head of cauliflower or, you know, some potatoes and some chicken. And that's really what she did. So I've been so pleased with it and have used it a lot. And I think you hit the nail on the head right there in, in terms of how do we get people to do this? Because I want to back up a minute because as you're describing this beautiful story of your your grandmother and, and I have the same experience, you know, of, of anytime I envision my, my grandmother myself, she's in the kitchen doing nothing else but cooking. But even as someone who believes in whole food and does cook for her family, it gives me a little bit of anxiety to think about a grandmother who's starting from scratch in the morning and how 99.99% of us can't or maybe don't even want to. But I think if we can just encapsulate what you said a little bit, which is, yes, most of us can't or won't spend the entire day in the kitchen. It's not about not taking any shortcuts, but there's something in between Uber Eats and spending all day in the kitchen, right? We can't. Absolutely. Be number one, I think, is being more just intentional about what we eat and not reactive, right? If we can think about it, if we can understand that it requires some time, not all day, but we can also not, we can't expect for it to take no time, right? Care for ourselves and for our families and for the food that we put in our bodies requires some time. And if we can just start with that, if we can agree upon the fact that, yes, that self-care requires time and effort, and then whatever that time and effort is for you and your family, maybe it means going to the farmer's market for one hour, which I got in this past weekend, one hour to have fresh produce in the refrigerator, or maybe if it means, you know, prepping the beans and the grains that you mentioned once a week so that we have it for the week. It doesn't mean being Martha Stewart every day. It it can mean much smaller than that. But I think we need to first take that step back and agree on the premise that, yes, it requires time. We have to allow for that. We have to give ourselves permission for that. (laughs) 
That's exactly right. And maybe some of that time becomes me time and self-care time. And we we think of it as work, but it actually becomes a ritual that pours into us. And one woman that uh, I had on my podcast, Dr. Ann Fischel is at Harvard and she does the family dinner project. And she um, has gone around the United States listening, really listening to families and listening to moms and trying to figure out how do we get this to happen? Exactly what you're saying. You know, how do we make it relatable and easy for people to get meals on the table? Because really her research has shown that kind of everything we hope for, for our families happens at the dinner table. I mean, just gathering for a meal has so many incredible effects on grades behavior, truancy, the lack of substance abuse, sexual promiscuity. I mean, you name it. And that accountability and that community and that connection that we have at the table is really the bigger piece, right? It really isn't even about the food at that point. And so I think as moms, parents, as uh, family members, the best thing we can do is to get a meal on the table. And, and maybe you know, and Dr. Fischel is awesome about this. She's like, maybe it's a rotisserie chicken and you throw together a salad to go with it. And that counts. Maybe you don't cook at all. And maybe you order a pizza, but you sit at the table together and that counts. And then you, you realize the value of doing that and you want to go a step further. And so sort of these gateway entry points for certain families that maybe cooking isn't their thing. You know, she has some interesting ways to entice people to get to the table. And once they see sort of the fruits of their labor, whether it was Uber Eats or actually making the food, they want to create that space for their family. And they see sort of like the results over over the long haul that only really sitting down at the family table can bring. And so- Valid point. Yeah. I mean, that's such a valid point. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, I don't treat children. I treat adults, but oftentimes my patients will- come to me with concerns about their children and their children's weight, especially, you know, over the pandemic. And and even I personally can attest to that in my own household, but talking about things like sitting at the, at the table without technology is not just a kind of kumbaya point. It's actually something that is embedded not only in our traditions, but also in our, in our science, which shows that Families that eat dinner together have a reduced risk of obesity and weight gain. So these are these are points that shouldn't be dismissed in terms of we want to talk about macros and calories and you know dietary plans, but even kind of the more more wholehearted guidance, which is the ritual of sitting at the table, is valuable not only in nourishing our relationships but also nourishing ourselves in a way that keeps our bodies healthy and in weight maintenance. You know, if we want to just talk about strictly adults, if we look at the Blue Zone project by Dan Butner, if you look in, you know, Sardinia and Okinawa, Japan, and the Seventh-day Adventist in California and and Greece, and and the I think it's Icaria um, or Icarus, sorry, uh, in Greece, if you look at the different blue zones, there's no talk about dieting. There's really no talk about gym memberships. There's no talk about, I mean, and these people are living into their hundreds with quality, not just quantity, but quality. And so much of such a center of those cultures is breaking bread together. And it's one of, it's one of the capstones or, you know, just absolutely foundations of those societies. And so, and and also just a lack of, a, some of them, a lack of technology and having to do some of the work themselves or having to walk to the person's home to share a meal with them, a few different things. But I think one of the, the, the biggest takeaways for me was just the accountability and the social interaction and then having that community and having sort of motivation to get up and make something because you've got somebody coming over, you know, or I just think it's so fascinating to see across so many cultures that are very, that have very different food contents, this consistent longevity piece that is really getting our attention. So I love, I love the work he's done. Uh, Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I think because on this podcast, we like to be actionable and provide people health bites. I think if we can just synopsize the first part of our conversation, if people can think about, you know, not just what they're consuming, but also how they are, how they are preparing and how they are consuming. And so maybe the, the actionable bite would be engineer some time into your day in terms of, or even your week 
thinking about what you're going to consume, how you're going to prepare or obtain that food in that in the best way possible, and then consuming it in a way that is with family and not technology, or even if you're eating alone, you know, in the middle of the workday, putting away the laptop or the phone and really giving the food that respect and attention that it deserves. I'd love for you to now talk a little bit about, well, I mean, you've created programs to teach people how to be actionable in these ways. So tell us a little bit about your culinary programs and what are your takeaways in terms of what's been most impactful for your students? Sure. Well, I was one spoke in a really large wheel of a great team of people who created the CHEF program, which is culinary culinary health education for families. And this was a program in San Antonio that, that received a very generous grant to do something about childhood obesity. And so we ended up coming up with the program name and it was kind of like, like a very entrepreneurial thing because no one at the time really knew that much about culinary medicine. This is about eight years ago now. And so we ended up uh, having the funds, which was which was really fortunate to create seven teaching kitchens in San Antonio. And this was pre-COVID. So not only did we have a teaching kitchen in that science exhibit I was talking about at that health science exhibit with our grocery store, but we also had one at the Children's Hospital and we had one at the Botanical Gardens with this beautiful culinary garden. Not only those, but also some at the YMCA's and the Boys and Girls Club. So we had this captive audience of kids who were from underserved families who needed to eat after school. So it was just a perfect, you know, the stars aligned perfectly. Well, let's not only give them the right snacks, but let's teach them how to cook at the same time. And so what was really neat was the child was the patient really, especially at the hospital program, but the person we really needed to get to was the person with the, you know, the car keys and the wallet, right? The person who was making the, the food decisions was the parent. So we ended up sort of making it this fun activity. There were much more how to and what to do than what not to do. We had a couple of rules, which was no sugary drinks at the table when we ate and then like no phones. And so we just had a basket, we put the phones in. But other than that, it was very accepting and open and and not judgmental and not telling people what not to do, but saying, hey, look what you can do. And so you have a teenage kid, you know, a guy that's 15 who's like, I hate fish. And he makes a roasted salmon in our teaching kitchen and it tastes like meat to him. And he's like, is this fish, you know? (laughs) And so we have, we have countless stories, cute, cute stories of kids connecting and parents connecting. And we were sort of guiding, but really what it was, what was best is when those people in, in the community got together and said, well, how are you doing this? Your, your child has this food allergy. You know, at the hospital, we saw more complex cases where kids maybe couldn't eat certain things. And and just to see the mom saying, well, how are you getting around this? And and what are you doing? How, you know, your child can't eat French fries or chicken tenders anymore. What are you doing? And so, well, I'm using the chickpea flour to bake these chicken tenders now. Or, and just watching that unfold was, was such a treat. The program, of course, because it was in person during COVID and I, and I actually left the program before COVID. I have a whole nother story where I got EBV and mono and I had to step down because I, after about two years, I was still not getting better. And mm. uh, I knew that I couldn't quit my family and that I, you know, I had to quit my job. And so I left on great terms and was in the middle of a research project at that time. And I did, I did wrap that up. So I'll talk about the research a little bit. It was a pilot study and we evaluated the feasibility of nutrition education, cooking instruction, and produce vouchers for pregnant low-income moms to increase their fruit and vegetable consumption. And so these were first trimester pregnant moms who were receiving prenatal care at like a federally qualified health clinic. And then they would attend a grocery shopping tour, a cooking class conducted by like a registered dietitian. And we really focused on incorporating fruit and vegetables into these meals. But then we also gave them this $40 voucher. And we went through the SKUs of the grocery store. And we the only thing that voucher would work for were fresh fruits and vegetables and some canned and frozen fruits and vegetables without kind of extra syrup and extra fat. So we went through and we kind of really selected, you know, the cream of the crop of the healthiest items. Basically, you know, the takeaway points were, you know, the the younger the moms and the lower the food security the less likely they were to complete the study requirements. And these were the shopping tour, the cooking class, and the nutrition education at their appointments. We we were able to correlate the, the availability of vegetables at home with menu planning skills and grocery shopping skills. So the more they had around, the higher their menu planning and grocery shopping skills were. You know, it's no surprise that the intake of fruits and vegetables significantly correlated with their availability 
and their menu planning skills and their grocery shopping skills. So, you know, the better they were at figuring out, okay, I'm going to buy this. It's going to sit on the counter for three days and I can still use it on day four. You know, the better they were at figuring that out through the course, the more they ate. And so one of the things that was so interesting, Adrian, about the study was just talking about empowering women to understand how much influence they have on their family's health through meals. And I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, it was always women women in my family cooking. I know some people have the joy of their dad cooking, but I mean, my dad does cook, but for the most part, I think it's mostly women who are making these decisions. And especially for the underserved community, I think it's mostly women. And so it was really beautiful to see these women at the end of the study. And we'd say, what did you think? What could we improve? What do you, how could we do it better? And they, they just kind of were stopped in their tracks because you could tell that not many people had really asked their opinion on something like this. It was just so emotional for me to be speaking Spanish with these women and, and hearing from them in a way that they were really, they felt so important. And I really want to stress that, that every person who's feeding a family is important and you're probably the most important factor in your family's health. And it's such a, it's such an impact that you can have. So I was able to, to wrap up that study and complete that and publish it with uh, Dr. Dr. Karen Cullen, Baylor College of Medicine, who was just without her, the study wouldn't have happened. So I can't say, talk about it without mentioning her. I was able to wrap that up and kind of wrap up the teaching kitchen activity. I was the medical director of that program and then take some time off. But in the meantime, the chef program just blossom during COVID because they were able to go on a video basis and also into schools. And so they could go into PE classes and then they have a lot of video programs. So they've grown leaps and bounds since I've left and have just done incredible work since then. I've, I've loved watching their trajectory and I, I got to be a small part of it at the beginning. And uh, it was, it was an incredible project to be part of. Sorry to interrupt, but is yeah. that something that like the public would have access to, you know? If... Yeah. Yeah. Um, ChefSA.org is our website and their recipes on there. And um, yeah, anyone can go, you know, from anywhere in the world to the website and get the recipes and they're all kinds of great videos and it's definitely nutritious, delicious food without breaking the bank. And so all of the recipes are geared towards, you know, very economical choices, but, but also really delicious ones that are easy to make. Yeah. I love and that. It's bilingual. We're going to tag that in the show notes because I think, you know, what, as I hear you speak, it's like one of the main principles that comes out is make fruits and vegetables accessible and utilize fruits and vegetables. And it's like, duh, you know, everyone knows eat more fruits and vegetables and it's good for your health. But at the end of the day, even when we know these things, you know, we don't need a medical study to teach us. It's still so hard to implement. Um, And, but I like the way you talk about it. And I think maybe these videos would help people with ideas in terms of how to incorporate those in the meals And the second point that I really want to extract from your words is that, you know, we started this conversation in in terms of like time management, right? Like we don't have all day, we can't start dinner, most of us at the close of breakfast. And a lot of our time, you know, we are as mothers are all trying to, or many of us are trying to separate our time. You know, if we work between our work and our children, if we're not working outside of the home, many moms have the additional work or burden of caring for parents or, you know, everyone, everyone's got quote work in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And yet we want to try and, and have that time for our families. And so what better than to employ your children it's like not even a twofer, it's a threefer because you're spending time with kids, you are engaging them in the process of nourishing themselves, which is so much more powerful than just telling them to eat their fruits and vegetables, right? And then you're also teaching them skills that they can carry on in perpetuity, hopefully, and for themselves and their families. So really like thinking about engaging your children in this process is so powerful on so many levels and it'll save you it'll buy back some time which we're all grappling with how to do right absolutely i love your your analogy of a double or triple dip because that's what it is you're you're kind of knocking out two or three things at one time and really just the self-efficacy that it builds in children when they, as pediatricians, we know that when they have a little bit of say and what they're picking out at the store, you know, this starts at, at meal planning, really. What, what what do you think we should make this week? Oh, hey, look at this website. Look at these 
colorful pictures. Oh, look what this kid's making. You want to try that? And then they go to the store and they help pick out a few ingredients. They're like, what is squash? I've never even had that. Well, we'll see. You'll you'll help me peel it and then cut it and we'll, you can taste it. And they're just so much more into tasting something that they don't know that's that's a foreign thing when they've been a part of the process. So that's something that we've really learned. And that's uh, kind of a no-brainer. But if you think about, I think a lot of times we feel like it's kind of an inconvenience to take my child to the store and have them in the kitchen because it's kind of messy, but I promise it will pay you back. So that's something that we've learned. You, know, you just kind of have to overlook that and and just, just kind of training your child on the fact that we can have this amount of money and we can make this great meal with it. And then we can have leftovers and we can do this with it. And it really is sort of a education of sorts that kids really need to know before they go to college or leave home and go, go live on their own and do their own job, have their own family. So yeah, even college bound, right? Like, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, let's, let's reiterate that we can employ our little toddlers in the kitchen and, and give them tasks, but then you know, thinking about, and, and it resonates with me because I have a daughter who's about to embark on college herself. Fly the coop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how to help with, with kind of impl- planting those seeds, right. A little bit more firmly. So I love all of that. We, we weren't really going to get into this very much. Your kind of latest passion, which is, which is dealing with burnout specifically in female physicians. Um, but uh, I'm having a roundabout in my own mind and because, because I'm thinking, you know, while you work with a very specific demographic, burnout is not something that is novel in our society right now. We're talking about, we're in the midst of kind of the great resignation, which I feel like is just exponentially increasing by the second. And so I think it's very relevant to many people in terms of rethinking their work-life balance, rethinking their professional time and their professional life. And that does impact our how we nourish ourselves, not just from a time management piece, which we've already addressed, but also from an emotional piece, a spiritual piece. Um, so tell us a little bit about maybe some themes that you have gleaned in terms of your work with burnout and why this became important. Why is it important now? And how can we tie it back to the conversation? Sure. Well, great question. It, it is amazing that it affects every sector. I mean, my husband's in the solar business and he's having trouble hiring people and it, it just you know, every restaurant, every airport, you know, right now right. we're seeing, you know, everyone has a help wanted sign and there are a lot of people like not available. It's like, where is everybody? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think COVID was, I think the silver lining of COVID, of course, it affected so many families in such a grave way, but the silver lining, I think for many professionals was work. I'm getting up in the morning to work out at like five in the morning. I'm getting, I'm blow drying my hair and getting fully dressed and getting on a train. I'm going into the city and working all day and then coming back. I mean, some of the people that were commuting and things like that, I think it just really helped them to see how they were spending their time. And I think we all kind of realized or recognized things that were filling up our cup and things that weren't. And it became pretty stark and pretty clear as to what was pouring into us and what wasn't. And I think it was a great time to just reevaluate, you know, how we're spending our time and what kind of legacy we're leaving by the the work that we're doing every day. And so I think at least for women in medicine, at least for me personally, I had four children at home. I mean, I became a flight attendant in my own house because we've got a basement and I was, I had a tray and I would go down to the basement and to the first floor and to the second floor with food for everybody. And my husband worked at home. And this was like, I I can't remember how long, 15 to 18 months. I think everybody was at home. It was the most wonderful time for our family because my first child hadn't gone to college yet. So it was like our last little hurrah, you know, in this cocoon. But at the same time, I had the the absolute luxury of being able to stay home with my kids. I know a lot of women who couldn't do that. And so you had sort of this time scarcity and then you had this health scarcity, like, you know, I don't want to bring stuff home to my kids. You know, there was all this worry and anxiety and there were just so many questions and so few answers. So I think people started looking at the economics of childcare and outsourcing meals. And, you know, at some point it just made sense for some people to, to stay home. So for me personally, you know, I had an illness on top of that. And I, I I think mine was divinely orchestrated. You know, I think I just needed to be at home that time and it all worked out. I had wrapped up everything in a bow way before COVID started, which was lucky. Yeah. It's, it's a time that I think, you know, we talked about a little bit before we started the 
the pod uh, was just autonomy and just, you know, what sort of things do we need to feel freedom? And we need to not feel tied to our paycheck. I mean, this is again, a luxury, but if, if we're so tied to our paycheck in a job that is not fulfilling to us, and then we feel like we're just going through the motions, I mean, we are going to burn out. And so we need some autonomy in terms of our schedule and in terms of maybe having passive income or earning money in different ways, or like you, you know, becoming an author and, you know, kind of like having other outlets to support our family is one, is one important thing. And then just belonging, like, how do you feel about the organization you're in? Do you feel like you're a valued member? Do you feel like people listen to your ideas? Do you feel like someone who brings something to the table as a leader? And then just our competence, right? Like we need to feel competent in what we do. We need to feel like we're really impacting people's lives and really giving back in a way that is making a difference. And so I think at least for me, I don't know about you, but I, and COVID was really a time when I started thinking about, here's my calendar, here are my hours. Does my calendar reflect my values and my priorities? It became about not getting more done, but about getting the right things done. And I, I think I think productivity and time management really is about, and, and being hungry for more is, is the same thing like your book. It's really not about doing more things. It's about doing the right things. The things that really fill up our cup and really speak to us and really nurture us. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in gifts and we all have, we all have gifts that the world needs when we're not in community. We don't really know what to do with those gifts. We don't know which gifts are valuable. And I think COVID was also a wake up call on that because we were isolated. And all of a sudden you kind of, you didn't know what you were contributing. You didn't feel that contribution. And I think when the world opened up again and we had a chance to contribute again, I, I think we were a little choosier about what we wanted to contribute and, or at least me personally. So that's when I started the podcast. Really the joke in podcasting is that you're talking to yourself like three years ago, <laughs> like trying to save other people time uh, by sharing your mistakes. And yeah, I just think mindset is is huge and really digging deep into things and really the spinning plates have to stop spinning for you to to really get there. And whether that's a disruption, like an illness or an accident or a trauma or a divorce, you know, when those plates stop spinning and we have one of these disruptions, which can often be viewed as very negative, if you can find the silver lining, you know, such as COVID of really letting the plates stop spinning and really digging into your heart and your mind and thinking about what it is you can contribute to the world and what you were meant to contribute and what what you were destined to help other people with, I think I think that can be really powerful. So in a way we can take our setbacks and our disruptions, create something, basically a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You know, I think, I think for me, that's kind of what happened with my podcast and with COVID. And it wasn't that I didn't love my job and love my patients, but there's only so much I could do. And I have four kids and we were remodeling our house and I was hosting my family, my big fat Greek wedding, you know, Italian family who loves food for Thanksgiving. And I wanted that to be perfect. And I, I just, I all of a sudden could not handle anymore physically and got sick. And so I think sometimes it takes something like that to hit us over the head to realize that, that we've got one too many plates spinning. And just because we're able to keep them up in the air, doesn't mean that we should, that we can focus, you know, the whole essentialism theory, which is, you know, have one arrow going really wide and far versus a hundred arrows, just going a little bit off the circle. If you've ever seen the cover of that book, but so, yeah, so I think that's kind of what I'm working on now, because I, I feel like it's so meaningful in terms of helping people kind of stop and take stock of really what their gifts are in a way that they can contribute even more to the world. Well, I think, I mean, this is so important. And I just want to reiterate the relevance here because, you know, I share in my book, the spiritual hungers that result in weight gain. And, and so we can look at it for on a somewhat superficial level ish, which is weight gain. We can take it a step further, which is overall health and well-being. There's so many layers that we can look at. But the fact remains that when things are, when we aren't kind of in a place in our lives that is aligned with our true values, then we do suffer or risk suffering burnout. And oftentimes that void though, before we get there is filled with soothing with things. And the most accessible way to soothe ourselves is with food. And so it is very relevant 
to our conversation. But going back to being actionable, uh, as I like to be, because I, I worry that when people hear us speak, they may think, well, A, I, I'm not suffering divorce or illness, so I don't have this strong impetus to stop. And maybe I don't have the financial wherewithal to stop, to get myself off that hamster wheel. Or maybe I don't even know where to begin, right? Like, where would I even begin figuring out what my gifts are, or what my values are, or how they are in, in alignment? So can you take a step back and just offer some practical steps or resources as to like, if I'm feeling that way, if I'm feeling like I'm burning the candle at both ends and I'm really not aligned, something is not sitting well in terms of how I'm living my life. How do I even go about thinking about doing this differently. Right. I mean, I think one thing that's helpful, it it sounds counterintuitive. It's sort of like looking further ahead. So it's a little bit of a future thinking thing. But if you think of kind of like a five-year blueprint, I think we underestimate what we can get done in five years, but we overestimate what we can get done in a year, right? We On January 1st, we're like, all right, I'm going to write three books and I'm going to, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we, if we look a little further out, I think a lot of times we can take a year in our head and we can think of all these things we want to do. And when we don't meet our benchmarks, we get frustrated and discouraged. And then we're like, well, I can't do anything. But if you, if you take a, give yourself a little bit more time, like if you give yourself like a five-year blueprint, like truly like between now and 2027, what three things do you want to accomplish? And it could be relationships. It could be health, it could be financial, it could be professional, you know, think about the areas in which you want to improve and then, and maybe kind of come up with this five-year blueprint. And then you can kind of back it out. What would have to be true for one of these things to happen? Maybe just take the most important one to you. What would have to be true? Let's just say somebody feels like they're not in their, their fighting weight. They're not in their best form since we're talking about hungry for more and and health. Uh, Let's just say If in five years you want to be a certain, have a certain cardiovascular fitness level or or a certain cholesterol level, or, you know, let's just say there's a a medical thing you're trying to work on and you can back it out. Well, what would have to be true for you to improve your health? Well, would you, would you need to start scheduling exercise? Would you need to meet with a nutritionist? Would you need, you know, what are these little bitty steps? And then you can back it out to three years and back it out to one year. And so just this year, what is the the one goal I'm going to work on? And what are the, what are the three steps to try to get there this year? And what would have to be true for me to be working towards that five-year goal? And so that sounds kind of overwhelming and long, but I think what it is, is it's very patient and it's sort of giving yourself a way to save face. Like, of course, one year isn't long enough to maybe really turn my health around, but five years is what little bite-sized pieces can I work on each year and, and backing that out. And I think, you know, sitting with someone, you know, if you don't have the money for counseling or a coach, you could talk to your doctor, your primary care physician about, I want to work on these things. I don't know where to start. You could talk with someone at your place of worship, you know, like, what, what are some ways that I can, that I can work on setting goals? There are tons of things online and I don't have one that I can give, but I, I think that if you even look up five-year blueprint, you'll find a way to fill that in. You'll find uh, things for that online. And so I think just some work on goal setting, there are lots of blogs on smart goal setting and that that's a whole nother topic, but basically how can we have an achievable and measurable goal that's realistic? And so if you look up smart goal setting, I think that would be a great place to start if you're doing it on your own. If you have someone at your disposal that could help counsel you, I just think accountability is really great. And so even if if it's a friend or uh, someone at work or even someone at your place of worship or a relative, you know, get a buddy or a partner who's maybe working on some of the same stuff and keep each other accountable. So those are some ways that I think people can start. I know that it can be daunting. And I, I know like, I'll give a personal example of something for me that I've been working on since I was in like second grade that I can't fix. <laughs> I am a total night owl and I have been working on my sleep like forever. And of course I got mono because I was coming home from working like whatever, 60 hours a week. And then I was the general contractor on our house and I would stay up all night writing emails about the house. And then I would get up early and do it all over again. I had to have that disruption of getting sick to really get serious about my sleep. I had to go see a sleep specialist. I had a light that I had to put in my face in the morning to really wake up because I do not like the morning time. I understand what it's like to not be able to do something that I, that I know is good for me. 
I've had to sort of take certain triggers out of my life and certain cues out of my life, like thing at night, this cell phone at night is not good for me. And I, I have to not have it around after like 10 PM, or I kind of go down a rabbit hole. My husband will fall asleep and I'm like, Ooh, free time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I totally, I just want to share that. I completely understand what it's like to fail. I have failed at that many times. I'm still working on that today, this week. Like, like I started to take melatonin and that did the trick for me. Cause I, I, for the first time, I really felt tired at night. Like for me, I'm like a little raccoon. I come alive when the sun goes down and it's just a nightmare with four kids that, that does not work with, with the family. But I remember, and I say second grade because I, I was on a, a, you know, Girl Scouts and Brownies. I was on a brownie field trip and I got the night owl award from the moms in the cabin. And I was like, is that a compliment? Wait, I'm not, wait, hang on. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't because I was up chattering, keeping them up. I've struggled with some behavioral change things myself. And I completely understand that we're human and it's innate. Some, some things with our temperament are innate and, um, you know, and it, it may be food or it may be lack of exercise, or it may be spending these soothing behaviors that you're talking about or numbing behaviors are things that we have to work really hard on. So I would I would say if you can think about, you know, this is really weird and kind of creepy, but I'll, I'll tell you what, it really helps me. Get out the newspaper and read some obituaries and read some people's obituaries and think about what do you want yours to say? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your kids to think of when they think of describing you or your family? And um, I know that sounds kind of creepy, but that is really motivating to me because it, it keeps you really focused on the big picture. And so if you can think about your legacy and, and how you want people to remember you, what is it that you want to contribute? Do you want to be remembered as someone who was just an absolute helper and nurturer? Do you want to be remembered as someone who was, you know, contributed to academia or whatever profession you're in, you invented something or, you know, I don't know what it is that that your listener wants, but we're all different. And that's what makes the world go. If you can really think about your legacy and that creepy obituary analogy, but think about what you want yours to say and, you know, how can you get there? And um, it starts out by looking ahead about five years and backing that out. What would have to be true for somebody to write that about you? What, what do you need to change to get there? And um, again, working on those SMART goals, if you look up SMART goals or the five-year blueprint, these are all things that are available online that there are a variety of them, but they're all really helping you get organized and sort of writing down a plan. And it kind of goes back to cooking dinner for the week, right? I mean, you kind of have to have a plan and you kind of, it's not just going to happen. If you leave yourself kind of at risk for just, Hey, we'll figure it out when we get there. You're probably not going to eat the meal you envisioned, or that was your goal. It's the same with, with our life goals. You know, like you do, you do need to have a loose plan. And of course things happen serendipitously too, but I think having a loose plan is a way that we really schedule our time in a way that matters for us. And, and, and if we don't put things that matter on our calendars, other people are going to fill our calendars with stuff that doesn't matter. And that is one of the first things that I learned when I was really looking into time management. It's not about doing more stuff. It's about doing the right stuff. I think those are all great suggestions in terms of how to kind of be really practical about uh, goal setting, whether they're, they're habit, habitual goals or habit change related or even bigger change, like we talked about in terms of professional growth or professional change, or maybe even starting a profession if you are a mom who put that on the back burner so that you could care for your family. And I just want to add to your great suggestion, something that we even spoke about before we started recording, which is which is really the power of permission, right? A lot of times it just starts with giving yourself that allowance that you could do things differently and and putting away those immediate barriers that come up when we think when we dream big or envision our lives differently we immediately say no we immediately say we can't and think of all the ways in which we can create barriers and so sometimes it's just a matter of um giving yourself permission to do things differently and i would take even a step further to say if you're not even in the ballpark like you're listening to this and you, you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what I would even want if I were given permission. I also am very much um, a fan of writing. It's something that I started when I was six years old and mm-hmm. in third grade, and I've done virtually every night of my life since then. And writing has always been a way to 
not only process, but also to gain clarity. And so um, for those of you out there who want to explore this a little bit further, I do recommend a um, pretty journal and a pen in a color that you love. And I always write in purple. I have one right here. Love um, your purple. That's, yeah, that's my favorite. And just sitting down and giving yourself time to write. But Julie, this has been such a uh, all-encompassing and wonderful conversation. Well, you're so, you can probably tell I have ADD because <laughs> I'm all over the place, but you were kind of allow us to go all over the place. One, one last thing I was going to say is that if you're one of those people who just is like, I have no idea what I'm good at, or I have no idea what I want to do, try to stop and think about what do people often come to you for? What, what skill or talent do you have that you don't even value because it's so easy for you? Maybe you make great cookies, or maybe you can whip a whip a stitch in, in a hem easily, or maybe you give great advice, you know, or you're a good counselor, even though you're not technically a counselor, you keep your, your finances like pristine at your house. You know, what are the sort of things that people ask you for advice on and come to you about over and over and over? And I guarantee there's something that's going to pop in your head and don't negate that as a side hustle or, you know, uh, maybe a hobby that could become a business. And, and generally those are the things that, that we're so, we're so good at that feels so effortless that we can really make an impact with. And so think about the natural gifts you have that you maybe discount because they are easy for you. Just because something's easy doesn't mean it's not valuable. And so I, I really, I think that's really important too. That. So I just wanted to add that. And I love your journaling. I think that's super valuable too. And I used to journal a lot and I haven't, since I had kids, I have several journals with like oh, this is their journal. It's like the first three months of their life and now they're 18. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't kept up with that as well as you yeah. have. But uh, but yeah, but journaling for yourself is different yeah. and um, carving out a little time for that each day is, is very powerful. So yeah. thank you so yeah. much for letting me just have fun and talk with you. I really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to read your book. Yeah, oh, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being here. And um, let our listeners know if they want to tune into your podcast and learn more about you. Just tell us a little bit about how we can connect. Sure. My website is pagingdr.mom. It's actually a dot mom. So pagingdr.mom. And then my, my podcast, you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. And that's paging Dr. Mom all spelled out. So it's paging D O C T O R mom. And I would love for you to listen and uh, write in with suggestions or things you want to hear about. We've had chefs and authors and a lot of a lot of people who are not doctors. Uh, we've also had some doctor dads on um, who give great perspective from their side. But the main thing is is that women are juggling a lot right now, and we all feel like we're on call twenty four seven, no matter if we're getting a paycheck or not. And so, come and listen and realize that you're not alone, and you'll learn a bunch of fun hacks in the process. So we'd love to have more, any, any listeners who want to join us. Thank you. Of course. And we'll definitely tag all that information in the show notes. Thank you again for being here. And thank you to the listeners for your time. Time is our most precious resource. So I appreciate you spending some of that preciousness with us. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem and find out more about the book, the blog, and all things health and nutrition at dradrianudeem.com. Thank you, Julie. I look forward to reconnecting. My pleasure. Thank you.